Okay, great. So we're live. Says we're recording. No, we're not live yet. Not live I'm just, yet. Okay. I mean, we I'm are here recording. live, but yeah, good one. We're alive. <laughs> Another really classic alive. one. Another classic. <laughs> uh, I feel like this is going to be our life now. To be honest, it's hard to see past this. Peak content creation. Peak content creation. Gonna move into a bunker at this point. Really, pretty much, bro. You Andrew, where are you at right now? No, we're not. Yeah. Uh, Rochester. Oh, Raw dog. That's what's up. Raw dog go crazy. Toronto Raptors land. Let's go. You said what? <laughs> I'm so sorry. In Toronto Raptors land. Hey man, oh. we're not gonna do this today, okay? This is, I don't have the energy. Like, how is this not yeah. a topic for the pod? I yeah, mean, I, I, I would just right before. No, go ahead. I would love to just screen share a map of the world, <laughs> so we could do, we could just clear this up once and for all. But you know, only with the, with your, with the permission of everyone in the group, uh, I'll, I'll do that. Oh my gosh. Yo, they say Canada is about to, or uh, Canada, California is about to open up. Uh, what does that mean? Like, technically, we have permission Who for is that to resume next sexy week. Sexy man. That is undergraduate G. Hayes. Wow. Flex on him. Flex on him, boy. What a time. <laughs> what a time to be alive, yeah. Give me one second. This is Zoom is tripping right now. Oh shit! I feel bad for Skype. By the way, they dropped the ball. They fumbled. The and they definitely had like a few years head start too. Like, oh, facts. <laughs> what, what were y'all doing? <laughs> Did they though? They like got you're, unused Danny, you're muted, you're muted. for like ten years. <laughs> but they were like the thing. Like video chatting was skyping. Mm-hmm. It was a verb. I had chicks back in the day. Am I not muted anymore? <laughs> oh, we can hear you now. And now we can hear you. Yeah, I was saying that Skype has like over a decade ahead of Zoom. So. Right? Like, <laughs> what were y'all doing, yeah. bro? Yeah, I remember when Skype came out. Like, I was at least in high school or middle school when it came out. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. sure. mm -hmm. I talked to Simone for the first time, like during a break, like we talked in person, but I asked for her Skype tag from one of our friends. And that's how we started dating. Through yeah, Skype. Man. Oh. I mean, I feel like you should be, your story should be in the Skype ad campaign to fight back against Zoom. <laughs> Like this narrative is uh, become the face of Skype. <laughs> Yo, that's low key true. That I don't know. They just fell off, man. They couldn't couldn't keep up. Okay. Oh no. Is that Angela Davis? She's on her Esther side right now. What? Okay. So what? What's happening in this picture? Do you guys remember exactly? She was hosting at our Black Christian Union night, 
her and like a former like we're all officers so this is like our bc unite page that's simone that's your boy um that's also your boy let's go <laughs> this was actually the first time this right here this is is an image of the first time they allowed black people to have cultural dancing at southern Perfect. Amen. And that was in 1936, was that, right? 1966. They, they, they tried it before. It was 2006. And, <laughs> they literally tried it in 09, and the dean of students turned on all the lights in the gym, shut the entire night down. Wow. So we had to fight. <laughs> he, to turned the lights he turned the lights on in a dark gym to shut it down. This sounds like a safety hazard, bro. <laughs> and the thing is, this was literally just the Michelle Obama let's move or whatever campaign. I don't know if y'all remember that. She did the thing with, with Beyonce. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's this. And that was like first but time. That's not the lights are. That's, that's like not a cultural dance. It's not a cultural dance at all. Not, not even at all. a little. No, no. But no, when I turn the lights down and do a hoedown and a rodeo and bring in sheep and fall festival their asses till the midnight, but can't have a cultural night. Oh yeah, and they had Asian night, which had it was all like almost all dancing, yeah. like food in the front, and then like almost all dancing and heavenly we dancing. Like, no. So you can't do any. And what's crazy? What's crazy is like it was swing dancing that they saw that the black people were doing that got shut down. They were swing yeah. dancing, which is like I'm, I mean, the black is getting better. It's kind of in the middle. You know that what is mean? Like, it's, it's like it's in the middle, Same. and they, they were like, "No, this is unacceptable. We're not gonna allow this." They turned all the lights on, shut the entire night down. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> well, swing dancing is short for swingers, so they knew where that was headed. Mm. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so simple. There you go. So for some reason, it's not letting me get to our affirmative interaction page. Like it's trying to force me to do it on my Facebook. So I don't know, Garrison, do you want to, this would be annoying, but do you want to try to use yours? Because I think last time you did it, didn't you do it to the affirmative interaction page from your account? I did. I did. But let me see. Can you make me like a host or a host on this one? I think I can. Let me do that. Uh, what's the weather like where y'all are at? It's like 90 here today. Yeah, it's hot. It's like 80. Yeah, it's hot. No Danny, where are you located? Area, so it's like... I'm still in Barion right now. But I'm... Has that, has that humidity hit in yet? Yeah, it has. I turned my AC on this week. Mm. Yeah. Hopefully by the end of June, I'll be back in the DMV. I think you have to make me a full-blown, you have to make me the host, unfortunately. All right. That's fine. Let me do that. Must relinquish control. Going here. Taking over. <laughs> this is his plan the whole time, bro. It's cool. Oh, it's working. It's working. Mr. <laughs> Burns. <laughs> All right, oh, yikes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, yeah, share on the page. Okay, cool. I'm going to close out some of these other tabs so we can get. Nixon, careful with that hair pick. You're going to get some emails. 
That's yeah, that's fine. Oh, black, black. They're already This is this is this is week this is week eleven, bro. <laughs> we we got a we got a we got a malware attack to our email anyway, so I'm not checking them. So yo, how has that been, by the way? Because it took our school like <laughs> months to recover, bro. My boy, it's been trash. <laughs> <laughs> it's been trash. I mean, we can get to it through Gmail, but I literally use my Outlook for everything: calendar, right? Right. Like, right. It's my address yeah. book. Every, yeah, I mean everything, bro. And so, like. It felt like starting from scratch in Gmail, so it's been terrible. Not the move, bro. At all. Just copying over information from our current episode listing, and then we'll be ready to go. All right. Um, this is going to be awkward, though, because I'm going to have to leave to go to this other thing at seven. <laughs> <laughs> but all right, I'm going live. I'm going live right now. Oh Lord! <laughs> oh wait, I had a title. I thought I did. Oh. Okay, never mind. All right, all right. All right. It's, perfect. It's I don't know if it's live. Maybe it's live. Go ahead. It's live. Yes. Hello, everyone. This is Jordan Spark here, back again with affirmative interaction. Sorry for the technical difficulties, but we are here now, and we are all safe. Uh, this is Michael Nixon, and of course, the rest of your friends, Danny, Simone, Garrison, Esther, Logan, and Adrian. Uh, we are here to talk about things that are happening, things that are of interest, and of course, enjoy time together and really dig into the topics that are relevant to our community uh, today. So I hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, please, anyone, toss in how you've been doing. Garrison, I did see on Instagram that you went for a bike ride on uh, Memorial Day, which was yesterday. How, how was that? It was great. Thanks for asking. Um, 25, just just a little over 25 miles. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. But trying to get my trying to get my speed up. I, I can't seem to catch up with my friends on Strava. But if you are on Strava, follow me. I'm team follow back. So I'm trying to keep up. <laughs> Strava. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Esther, I do understand that you have been uh, still working with your kids from a distance as a teacher. Uh, how has that been? Have things hopefully lightened up since uh, you started a couple of months ago? Um, it's, uh, it's not ideal. It's basically like if you do it, like students, if you do it, you pass. And if you don't do it, and you don't have a reason to not do it and we're hounding you all day long to do it and you still don't do it and like you don't pass but we're done now uh this is our last week of school so i'm happy about that <laughs> excellent very good and of course as you guys are uh aware or actually you will be aware now uh, danny esther and simone are now permanent members of affirmative interaction we're very excited hey very excited, very excited, very excited. Uh, Simone, how does it feel to be a part of such an esteemed group? Because I know <laughs> you are a very esteemed person. How does it feel? And how has work been going for you, too, in addition to that question? Oh, what a dream come true, both, you know. <laughs> Just glad to be counted in the number. Um, 
Yeah, work's been work's been good. Uh, it's been very remote, and uh, I think that it's going to be remote for oh a, a while. I, I don't know how the rephasing is going to go in DC and all that stuff, but uh, yeah, but it's been good. I can't complain. Very good, very good. Glad to hear. And Danny, uh, please tell us how have you been? Um, how's work going for you? And uh, yeah, how was a holiday for you too? Um, work is still work, still a lot of challenges, but I'm finally getting some type of schedule down uh, working from home. And so that's been okay. Uh, the holiday was great. I haven't left my house in like five days. So that's what I did on my holiday weekend. I sat in my house. So, yeah. Excellent, excellent. I think sitting is just the new pastime for everyone right now. Um, Mike, you have a daughter. I did see that you got to spend some time with her over the holiday. How was that? And how did you celebrate Memorial Day too? Uh, I mean, you know, spending, I mean, it's week 11. We've been spending a lot of time. So, <laughs> you know, so it wasn't like out of the ordinary at all. <laughs> uh, but no, nah, I mean, any time with Noah Nixon is precious time. So, I mean, I could do that for 1100 weeks. That'd be fine. But, um, yeah, Memorial Day was cool. Um, I've been doing like this detox thing, which is, you know, it's been interesting. Uh, I feel pretty good. I feel healthier. Um, I don't really have like a plan necessarily or goals. I just do two shakes a day. Um, and so I actually, I did that on Memorial Day. So I didn't really eat anything like Memorial Day. Like, you know, I wasn't at a party like Logan, but I mean, we, we don't need to get deep into that. I don't want to put his business in the street. You know what I mean? Nary a mask in sight. But anyways, I was secure at home, you know, just with family and safely away from COVID. That, that, so I had a beautiful time. Thank you. Actually, oh, go ahead, Adrian. I was just gonna ask Nick, have have you memorized the lines of Frozen yet while you've watched it? Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we 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 dive, we diving into the unknown every day. So you know, it was it was cool four weeks ago, but it's starting to. Yeah, we're we're on a, we're on a Disney kick. We're we're watching all kinds of things. We're Hulu has a kids section. Didn't know, but thank you Hulu for having a kids section. So. Yeah, now we're diving into that, so, yeah. That's good. It's, the stream possibilities are honestly endless. And Logan, I heard what was also endless was the amount of people that was at this party that were not wearing masks. Please, please tell us more about that. I would love to hear. Yes. We had a, a small barbecue, seven people. Okay. We were eating okay. dinner. So, man, we can't. It was fire. We had a whole spread. I felt guilty the whole time. Well, most of the time, some of the time, not even any of the time. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was it was fun to see a couple friends um, back in. Oh yeah, seven. I think that's the number. We'll say it was seven. That's great. Hopefully, we don't see you coughing during the program. So now we're gonna transition into our uh, first topic here. Um, Recently, Charlemagne uh, the God, there's only one God, amen, but that's his name. Charlemagne the God interviewed Joe Biden, and he talked about, you know, things that the black community is interested in, what we want to see from the Democratic nominee. Joe Biden 
said a thing. Some people were mad at what he said. Adrian, please tell us what he said. Because yeah. uh, it seems like Twitter was on fire for just a little uh-huh. bit. So um, as uh, Jordan has stated, um, Vice President Joe Biden was on um, a, a, an interview on Friday, which we know as the Breakfast Club. And the host, the primary interviewer, was uh, Charlemagne the God. And um, the bulk of the interview was essentially um, Biden's uh, way into providing um, uh, insight on why Black people should vote for him in this upcoming uh, election. And they went through a number of things uh, throughout the interview. For example, they talked about the 94 crime bill, um, which uh, he had some interesting comments on that. Um, but the, the biggest concern that I think people have kind of focused their attention around is when he says, and I quote, um, well, I tell you what, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or for Trump, then you ain't black. And that, that snippet has gone somewhat viral for the last few days. Uh, Biden has come out and he's made a formal apology. He made an apology over the phone with a lot of uh, black business owners. And um, obviously there was a lot of backlash and um, a number of people, a number of very important people have come out and expressed uh, their frustration, their concern, or just the the lack of awareness of the arrogance, I, you can say, that, that Biden kind of uh, presented himself as. And um, it really does now open up the question, which I'm sure all of us have seen in the last few days on social media, is, um, is the Black vote being exploited um, by the Democratic Party. And um, I definitely want to hear your guys' thoughts on that um, because it almost seems as though every time Biden opens his mouth, <laughs> he's making it harder on himself to <laughs> get his me. And so I, I'm, I don't know, man. I've got my opinions, but I want to hear from y'all. Um, what, what, what are y'all thinking? How are y'all feeling? <laughs> hey, I mean, I have I have opinions as well. Um, I, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I think that that you know, uh, Joe Biden's substantive plan to benefit his black agenda, his his plan to benefit Black America, um, is better than Donald Trump's plan to benefit Black America. I really don't think there should have been that much controversy over the statement. I, I think we should push. Joe Biden to be very conscientious about what he says. I think we should push all Democrats to be very conscientious about their words. I don't think the Democratic establishment should take advantage or even take for granted black people. But if you change the sentence just a little bit, I mean, at at its core, the sentence really is what we all think and believe. If you are thinking about voting for Donald Trump over Joe Biden, then you ain't for black people that's the sentence like at its core that's the sentence and should joe biden have said it absolutely not but do i think it's just like this most egregious oh my goodness i can't believe what i just heard no that's not my personal reaction to it 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 kind of sounds like you're just stating he's the wrong messenger to say anything remotely close to that 
any white person should bring a level of humility when talking about black. No white person can ever dictate someone else's black, a black person's blackness or Indianness or Latinxness. Like that, that's just not the place. Like that, you got to be careful with your words. Do I think the ultimate message of like, hey, this is an obvious choice for your community? I think that part of it is true. And 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 again, I think he it's a self-inflicted wound because he doesn't have to this doesn't have to be a headline. The headline doesn't have to be Joe Biden says something quote unquote racist. The the headline should be Joe Biden says if you think about voting for black for for Donald Trump, you're not for black people. And I think that's a better headline, but he played himself. The thing is though, he didn't say you're not for black people he said you ain't black which is a qualification that your blackness is defined by who you vote for and there's no space i think where joe biden should ever say anything like that i thought that also as a politician who has been in politics for so long he should have better facility over his language and his thoughts he should be able to present his platform clearly. He should be able to express himself. And as a 70 something year old man as well, like you've had, you've had enough time to be able to know how to speak to people and how to do interviews. So there's no excuse for him or for any Democratic or Republican leader who has been in politics to say things and say, oops, because the one thing you learn in politics is how to say stuff. That's what yeah. politics is all about. It's about the way it's said. So, yeah, I'm sorry, Joe. I, I do want to yeah. jump in here. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Garrett. Uh, Logan, go ahead. Oh, no, you're fine. Okay. Um, I have to say, I, I don't want to just pair what Danny said, but Danny, I feel like you're honestly spot on. Um, you know, for me, it's like he said what he said, and I don't want to do this comparison between Joe and Trump. But when I'm critiquing Trump in my mind, I take what he said for what he said, the exact words he used. Personally, I'm not trying to explain away, oh, well, he actually meant this. Cause I feel like that's what some people that support him would say. Oh, 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 oh. he wasn't saying that all Mexicans are rapists. He's saying some of them. So it's the same thing about, it's the same concept of, we gotta take language for what it is. I will say for Joe Biden, his platform for black people, like what Garrison was saying, is 100% better. And I'm still gonna vote for him. I, again, I like, I like the, the picture you guys put in the, in the group. You know, I don't gotta like the guy. They use a different word that I won't use on Zoom. But I don't have to like no, the guy, but I'm gonna I'm still, still vote for him. I'm gonna disagree, but I'm gonna still vote for him. I'm gonna hold him accountable, but I'm gonna still vote for him. The amount of outrage we should have, I think that's up to the individual person. But I can definitely dislike what is coming out of his mouth and still say, I like your platform. I'm marking your name on my ballot. No, I agree. I, oh, no, no. Go ahead, Logan. You're next. No, I agree with that, like, sentiment. Um, I think when you start to look at Joe Biden, he's an old white guy. Um, and I feel like old white guys don't have a really good grip on how they should be having personal conversations. I think we can we can break down Joe Biden's, like, ideas and policies that he wants to bring and benefit the black community because he's hopefully and definitely brought in black people to help him understand that but when you get an old white guy in an interview with people that he doesn't really interact with that much he's gonna say a bunch of stupid stuff because he's probably very disconnected in that 
and we shouldn't give any pass. I could just see him walking like off of that Zoom call and like laughing to his people around him and be like, yo, killed that, didn't I? And they're just like staring at him like, <laughs> no. Uh, and it's like, what, that didn't land? That wasn't funny? And everyone's just like, Joe. And like kind of explaining that out. And I think that's just probably how that went. I don't excuse anything he says. I think this is really stupid to say about any, you know, people group like that. Um, he tried to say he was trying to be cavalier about it. So like, if we're gonna, if we're gonna evaluate his words, I guess we have to at least try to evaluate his apology. You know, he said he was trying to be joking, which I think we all knew was obvious, but it was a really bad joke. It wasn't a funny joke. And like, I think the idea that we should kind of maybe try to navigate that and with a pass is kind of silly because I think this is the only way Joe Biden is going to learn to not only care through policy, but actually care through like personal um, approaches and how he has interactions. Cause you could tell Charlemagne was just looking at him like, I didn't want to have this interview with this guy in the first place. Um, and I don't want to have this interview anymore. Like it was just very like a direct line, but you know, old white people will old white people, I guess. Yeah, I definitely kind of feel like Joe Biden is an example of when white people become too comfortable with just saying whatever they feel like is generally socially acceptable. So, okay, so I know black people and most of the black people I know are like maybe anti-Trump, right? So like, therefore I can just say this blanket statement. And I think that there's a level of like, you know, social awareness and just etiquette and grace there that you know that, hey, I, as a white man especially, can never just like blanketly speak for an entire group of people and tell them that they're not black. Like Joe cannot revoke our black card. Like he's not authorized to do that. And I just think that it's, it's really kind of a lesson because we all have, you know, like friends that get really close and then they try to throw the n-word out you know not allowed to do that right like you can't don't don't uh, that's a that's a line and i think that he definitely you know kind of crossed that line you know and i think that was Mm -hmm. it was a little it was too much i agree with that i i agree with everything everybody has said and i agree like we really should be calling our candidates out when they are out of line I will say it's painful to watch this be utilized by Republicans <laughs> and Trumpers against like it's that part is painful to watch. And like, I wish there was a way for us to call out our candidates and hold them accountable without also like giving ammunition to the opposing side, like seeing the t-shirts and stuff. That was, that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd echo all of that. I, I want to also say, um, you know, I actually came across an interesting article. Well, that wasn't an article. It was a video. I think it was on, um, it was an interview on C- Chris Cuomo, Cuomo's CNN show. And um, I think it was Simone's, it was while uh, Bernie, uh, you know, RIP to his candidacy, uh, not him as a person, but, um, you know, Simone Sanders from his camp from his campaign was on um and I don't I don't want to sound like I just don't remember the uh the white woman's name uh from the Biden campaign but she was a Biden's surrogate don't take that as me like you know just trying to care in her or whatever 
but she was on some slight Karen energy. We'll talk about some of that next episode. <laughs> but um, but it was interesting because they were they were having a conversation about comparing Bernie and Biden um, as far as who would be best for Black voters, and um, they started going back and forth on this MLK quote, um, which. Uh, they were talking about actually the letter from a Birmingham jail and the Biden surrogate was trying to make the point that uh, it wasn't that um, MLK was just calling out white moderates, but he was calling out um, the silence of some white moderates. Um, and Simone Sanders was like, uh, no, that's actually not what he said. He explained the variety of different ways that white moderates were complicit in the racist systems and structures that were holding down black people at the time, which is why he was coming to Birmingham to, uh, to help protest. Um, and they went into this strange back and forth in which um, the Biden surrogate sort of um, basically, she basically got really upset. I mean, you just need to really see the video. She got a bit upset and then said to Simone Sanders that she didn't have the standing to make that statement. And if Simone Sanders was not, she was not having it. She said, wait, excuse me, you're going to tell me, a Black woman, what I have the standing to say or not say about a quote from Dr. King? Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, Cuomo kind of tried to diffuse it, like, hey, we're all on the same team, blah, blah, blah. He didn't handle it well, but he just kind of cut it after a while. But I thought about that. It, was, it wasn't really that long ago. It was like maybe a couple months ago that this happened. Um, and then, of course, the Biden surrogate came out on Twitter and apologized profusely, like, you know, the next day um, and all that type of stuff. Uh, but there disappears. And again, everybody's already said we're going to vote for Biden. So I don't want to just like repeat that, you know, that that's sort of we know that we know where we're at with that, that. At, at this point, you know. Yeah, OK, Logan, you're going to vote for Gary Johnson. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do think that we need to. Um, we have to just have a serious conversation at some point as black voters, as the black community about um, what the continued complicity in large part of white moderates is doing to damage our, our communities. To da We're not getting much of a return on our investment. And I believe that obviously, um, you know, in the age of Trump, it's probably more critical than ever that we just say, hey, we gotta do what we gotta do here and you know, hopefully hold their feet to the fire after we do what we gotta do. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we might be, this might be like the last time we could do something like that, you know? And I mean, who knows what it's gonna look like, oh, God forbid in 2024, if, if we're on the heels of eight years of Trump. But um, at, at some point, something has to give is what I'll say. You know, obviously, you know, we're gonna do what we gotta do. And I do believe, you know, Biden came out and apologized and all that type of stuff. Um, but the, the, the comfort level is just a little bit too, that, that's the other thing too. I was a little bit off put by his comfort level. And it's like, bro, I know you were Obama's VP and all that. And you, you, you've rid that clout into the ground at this point. Um, but we need you to, to put it back in check, my guy. Uh, you know, we, we, we appreciate you holding Barack down, but you know, now it's about what you're gonna do for us. You know, it's not about what happened because there's a lot in what happened in your Senate career. I mean, you did some stuff with some segregationists. Like, we can't, like, overlook some of that stuff. You know, you've been around, like, 30, 40 years. So it's not all good uh, from the perspective of Black people. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and Nick, I think you bring, bring up a great point about when you say like, what what is he going to do for us? And I think that's part of the problem. Um, one one could argue, one could argue that if you were to look through Biden's proposed policies, that he could in fact be running one of the most progressive campaigns that we've ever seen. Um, but the problem is he talked about those things in the interview, but no one's gonna care anymore because all they're focused on is the way he ended the interview. And so now it's like, you know, I know that, you know, we're not really the, the hugest fan of, of Charlemagne, but the reality is the Breakfast Club brings in 4.5 to 6 million viewers every time they air. And Biden, he lost a crucial opportunity to end that segment on a very great note. And now you have a, a group of people that were already, you know, you have some that were kind of on the fence if they felt comfortable enough to give him their black vote. And he's not, re he's not really helping their case by, by making comments like that. And it, he's just shooting himself in the foot here. Yeah, that's true. And I'll just speak to my uh, statement. Larry, I saw your comment that not all old white people, white guys, uh, that's fair. I do speak to the generalization there. But I think the reality is, is that I don't think I don't care if you are woke and aware, like I think everyone, including the, the biggest white anti-racists do have gaps, they do have areas that they need to improve regularly, daily. And so even though sometimes we not, may not fit into the uh, old white guy or, you know, me just a white guy bill, like I think we all have to be super aware to say, what am I doing to keep pushing back against that um, narrative of the people that I grew up around or interact with the most, which is my, my race, my uh, group. And just to be super aware of that, because, you know, I never get offended when someone calls out white people because they kind of make a lot of these mistakes. But... Yeah, I will, will say not not all old white guys. Very good. Uh, hey, I just want to pause here and say hello to everyone that is watching. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us. We're so glad that you're here. I love this comment by Nikkei Farron. He says, while I strongly agree that Democratic representatives are most likely in our favor, I do not think it's a I do think, excuse me, it's a toxic mentality in the black community that we invalidate each other's blackness. Tiffany Lelewin says, we can do both. We can hold him accountable and vote for him. I think Joe is teachable, unlike Trump. So those are great comments. Thanks guys again for uh, being with us and please keep engaging. We love to read your comments and make sure uh, we're getting your participation. So. That's it for Uncle Joe for now. Who knows, he might come up with something next week. But now we're gonna be talking about Otis Moss III. He did a beautiful, I would say sermon slash short film for Ahmaud Arbery. And um, from what I've been told, it's beautiful, revelatory, and it's a call to action for us church members in the body of Christ and members in the body of Christ, excuse me. Garrison, uh, you introduced us to this sermon. What really compelled you to share it with our group? And, and yeah, just tell us a little bit more. Very curious. Yeah, so the first thing I want to say is I actually think that Danny may have sent it to the group before I did. And I think I kind of bumped it. I, I sent it again. So credit where credit's due. 
Um, but I know that it was kind of out there in the ether a little bit. People were kind of talking a little bit about it. Maybe some people are already kind of aware about it, aware of it. But like you said, Jordan, Otis Moss III made this, I think you described it perfectly, sermon, short film type thing where he talked about this Ahmad Arbery case. He, he titled it um, The Cross and the Lynch, Lynching Tree, of course, a reference to the classic James Cone, um, James Cone work from Black Liberation Theology. And then the subtitle is a requiem for for Ahmad Arbery. If I if I didn't if I didn't say that right, it's it's because I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, <laughs> so he basically talked about um, the history, the very distinct African American history, Black history, honestly beyond African Americans, but the Black history that brings us to the moment where Ahmad Arbery is killed in cold in cold blood down in Georgia. And the thing that was so striking about it was just from the technical perspective, dude, like that team, the music was amazing. They intercut like historic clips and even modern clips, some filmmaking element there. It's just all around incredible. Um, so highly recommend. But the thing that really kind of like, I think could be a good place for us to have this conversation is the timing of it. It comes out on uh, this pat like last Sunday, and of course later on this this past week, Donald Trump uh, declares that uh, churches have to be immediately open. Right, that's his whole like thing. Like he's making this declaration that churches are open. And so as I'm watching this sermon later on in the week, the the dichotomy, the kind of comparison that really comes to mind is the fact that Otis Moss III, at the end of his message, he makes a very distinct and clear call for Christians in general, but Black people in particular, people of color in particular, to get engaged with the political process, to vote, to, um, to organize, to push for legislation, to, to join a union, whatever, it is, to get involved, to change laws, to change power and authority. And I thought it was just like, is one of the clearest voices I've ever heard in a sermon of people calling their parishioners, Christians to political action in that way. It was just so clear. But of course, as I said, Donald Trump also has a political voice that's married to Christianity where we're opening the churches, which is a clear political move to, and so I wanted to have this conversation. We, as Adventists, we talk a lot about a lot um, about not getting involved with church and state, but church and state are like married. I mean, like they're, they're so closely related and interwoven that it's nearly impossible for us to completely like, you know, compartmentalize our religious beliefs and our political belief, they're, they're interwoven. And I'm kind of curious, to get the perspective of everyone else, not only what did you think of these two, especially as they relate to each other, the black call to action, to political action, and perhaps the white evangelical call to political action, how do you see those two things related? And, and additionally, like, should we continue to espouse these strong anti-church and state views? Are they helpful? Are they, what's the, what's the utility there? I will say it, it does seem like the evangelical call to action, unfortunately, 
is keeping church open during a pandemic. And I feel like what it means to, you know, fight for your rights really needs to have a serious reevaluation among a lot of us. I think our political activism as Christians need to be very other-centered. What can I do to uplift the voices of others, to uplift, I will say, the freedom of choice for others? And I feel like we're just a little too concerned with how our political position and voice can craft the kind of world that we specifically like, instead of allowing others to have the right to have the world that they want, to have the life that they want. Yeah, yeah, Jordan. I, I go ahead, Nick. No, I was just gonna say I, I think it's um, it's a it's a really good juxtaposition, you know, that you've presented, Garrison. And um, I think and someone mentioned in the comments, so I, I want to make sure we mentioned that we were planning on mentioning it today. Um, of course, we were even made aware that another unarmed black man was killed at the hands of the police, George Floyd, in Minneapolis. Uh, their mayor has stepped up and fired the four officers who were involved. Um, but, but of course, the fight for justice there will go on. We'll probably, we're going to talk about that more in depth next episode. Uh, so, you know, maybe folks tuned in expecting us to talk about that. Just want to let folks know that, you know, we will have a lot more thoughts on that. Um, I know some of us in the group haven't watched the video. I unfortunately watched the video and we're going to talk a little bit about decisions around that as well, too. So make sure you tune in for that. Um, you know, I think as far as I've always sort of believed that the whole separation of church and state thing that we talk about in Adventism in particular, um, but in Christianity in general has always been a farce. It's always been a hoax. Um, Going back, I mean, first of all, I, before we even were an official denomination, you know, the Advent movement started off as a movement of abolitionists. And so we were very much on the right side of history on that front. I often go back to Ellen White telling uh, folks in the movement at that time to not follow the fugitive slave, slave law, uh, to, to actively obey it. So civil disobedience, which of course is very biblical. Um, and over time, since we formalized into denomination and then even further, um, you know, continue to have, you know, questions maybe around religious freedom and liberty, uh, we have a very well-funded and well-established religious liberty, um, not just, you know, office and things of that nature in our general conference, but across various different conferences, um, there's, there's probably a religious liberty profess, per, person at every local church. Um, they, they may not, I mean, it may vary what they're doing, but it's on the roster, you know what I mean? They, they might just be handing out them Liberty magazines or whatever the case may be, that one Sabbath a year or quarter, whatever the case may be. Um, but they're there doing their thing. And, but even beyond that, we have a very specific lobby to Congress around religious liberty. One of the things that I've always noticed from general conference sessions um, is that, you know, they'll always start off the session by playing these videos from politicians. And the only reason them politicians are sending them videos is because of our, um, our engagement with religious liberty. I mean, even, even one year, 
uh, we had a video from Hillary Clinton, which I'm sure the GC is trying to scrub right now off the internet. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the only reason Hillary Clinton knows about the Adventists is because of religious liberty, you know, and, and maybe sadly Ben Carson now. So I, I think, you know, in general, um, I think in general, we, you know, we, we have to just sort of let, I mean, I think that a lot of times what people are talking about when it comes to political engagement is maybe being careful with partisan engagement and, and, you know, just blind subscription to a particular political party, I think is dangerous, but we most certainly as a, as a denomination, as members of the denomination need to be actively engaged. Um, and part of that engagement should be being smart around whether or not you open your local church. And I'll leave that there for now. Don't open your local church. Yeah, <laughs> if you are in an urban area, especially. But if you're not, if you're not, you still shouldn't. I'm just that's yeah. my personal belief. I, I will throw in real quick before someone else jumps in. I have heard and I won't be specific on, you know, when and where, but I have heard from a number of people that there are local conferences that are pressuring churches to reopen at the beginning of June. Um, so I, I have heard that. Um, so that that's and that's something we maybe come back to as that continues to unfold. But that's a that's a huge problem. Um, there are obviously some financial implications, but I don't know what opening the church building doors for people who may or may not have lost their jobs does for your financial situation. But I mean, whatever. So, yeah. Garrison, uh, you brought up the uh, evangelical to call to action. I think within white Christianity, it's more of a call to inaction. Um, I don't think the white community as a whole gets on board with a lot of this, this conversation of the politics marriage because um, white evangelicals would have to first admit the, the, the reality that there are other people worshiping in the United States other than themselves. Um, white culture, especially within Christianity, which is what I kind of grew up in, is going to give us individualism and it's not going to look for a drive for justice and action because that just an action can be kind of sewn on sabbath or sunday morning with the other individuals that look like them that happen to show up for worship that morning i mean i think um the kind of idea of religious liberty is not religious liberty pertaining to justice it's religious liberty pertaining to how we can benefit as individuals. And in reality, the, the people, whenever I've worked in conferences, most of the religious liberty that we talked about was simply helping people find ways to not get fired for working on Sabbath. Like that was really the conversations that were being had in my churches that I worked at being like, well, you know, there's some people out there, they're facing the injustice of losing, losing their job for, for being required to work on Saturday. And, you know, it's kind of a weird thing because when we think of justice in our communities right now, which I do want to credit, like if your job is forcing you to work on Sabbath or anytime you want to worship, that's trash, like not a good thing. But when we start to talk about the, the conversations of justice in this sermon, as it, it mentions in Mott Arbery, like most of my timeline of white evangelicals was silent on the issue. They didn't want to talk about it because they don't actually see it as a problem in their community. If a Mod Arbery, and his family were to walk into most white churches, then 
they would be seen as a community service project more so as an invitation for membership because it is still a segregated segregated community within that and i don't think for the most part conversations of action are being had in white churches across the country and if they took hundreds of years to rewrite the image of a, of a savior to be a white man why would they at this point start to care about communities of color really speaking out to the injustices that are being faced every day um yeah and i don't know what we would do to even get to that point um for for white america and churches but um i want to push back a little on something you said logan um about the idea that with the white church in the u.s there isn't as much engagement with politics I'd actually say that some a majority of the religious engagement in politics is actually coming from the white evangelical church. And that kind of like dates back to the creation of the the moral, you know, the moral majority. Yeah, for sure. With Jerry Falwell. And that's kind of really pushed the direction and trajectory of legislation. And so evangelicals are lobbying and pushing for what they believe should be should happen and how like our country should be governed which is what we're seeing in the america right now but we saw it with like the reagan administration we saw yeah. it in the clinton administration like we've seen it conservative presidencies and um i think it's important though that we think about the way not just like separation of church and state because that is something but i think it needs to be a broader conversation about how people who are identifying as Christian should be engaging with politics. And there's really no guidance on how best to engage with politics and how much we should do. Um, and so I think that's something that requires more thought and more effort and building some type of framework for us to work from, to know how to do that. Um, so yeah, like I'll just drop uh, this book in uh, Ron Sider. He's a theologian. He wrote this book, Just Politics, like many years ago, about uh, a guide for Christian engagement with politics. And I don't agree with everything he says. I don't agree with all of his theology, but it is a really good framework for people who are looking to figure out how to, as a Christian, engage with politics and how your faith should guide your political interaction. So just gonna throw that out there. Yeah, I was gonna say something sort of similar to that too, Danny. Um, just about, I think, I think the idea that um, church and state are or should be completely separate is for like an ideal like fantasy world we live in where like people's humanity isn't politicized. Like when your humanity and identity is the like the political topic, then like it's impossible for churches not to be involved because church is all about hum humans and humanity and like how we should be and act and be treated. So like that's why I mean like within the black community, like the black church has always been politically involved. Like for a long time, it was like the source of our political engagement. So because like black identity is so politicized, it had to take that role and it provided a platform for so many people to do that and lead to so many different changes. And I think what we've seen on the opposite end, like you, you pointed out, like it's actually been happening a lot longer than I had even realized. But I think what we're seeing a lot more now is 
whiteness is starting to feel what it what it looks like to be put into that political spotlight. And so now white churches and evangelicals are starting to push like more vocally and obviously into this political sphere too, but like from the opposite end and not always aligning what they're saying with the Bible. Uh, that's a really dope point. I, I think, I know Adrian, you, I know you had something to, to say. Oh, 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 you're 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 muted. You're muted. JK, sorry. You can <laughs> go. You can go ahead and jump in because it sounded like you were going to respond directly to what you heard from Esther. My point was a bit of a tangent. Yeah, I think the thing that Esther and Danny both kind of triggered for me is just like I, I, and I think it's just kind of in the context of all this. I can't. I can no longer like kind of like continue to push the idea of a separation of church and state. And I think they made amazing points as to why. I mean, the, the point about the politicization of one's humanity, their being, I just want to echo that. that. That's an amazing point. And, and I'll kind of leave it. At that. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to pause really quick. Once again, thank you for tuning in. I do want to share some comments. Thank you so much, Jared. Jared is happy that we all look good. He's glad to see us. And he, is loving the show. I am loving hearing all of you too. So me and Jared have something in common. Um, so also, Don L live from NY. Live he says, from New York. Shout out, shout out. <laughs> the Don L says, choice. And he was responding to Joanne. Uh, actually, so let me read Joanne's comment first. She says, ah, actually, hold on a second. Well, this is what Don L says. I'll just read his. When there are only two options, basically our election is yes or no, black or white, on or off, Democrat or Republican, we need to acknowledge life is not that clear cut, maybe, and gray exists. Life is never that simple. And I do agree, I feel like bringing our religion as a guiding principle into our politics do also makes it a little bit more gray than just choosing an option left or right. Kerwin Jones says, Protestantism is supposed to be a protest against governmental abuse of power. Again, thanks again for sharing and, and please commenting. Adrian, I feel like you're going to say something. Please go ahead. Yeah, um, I, I think one of the things that I've seen um, in my experience as um, God has kind of con continued to convict me on this subject is, um, and I think we've all kind of touched on it, is the concern we have seen with the white moderate, and when it's under the religious scope of a religious uh, white moderate, um, there there is a level of, of passive um, energy that I see when it comes to engaging in these conversations, or there is not the same level of urgency that I believe is required to call yourself an ally in, in these conversations. Um, and I think there is also sometimes a, uh, a tendency to, to uh, formulate a scenario where we do coddle the fragility of some of the more conservatives on this conversation. And so you do have sometimes moderate try to put on events, try to put on programs, try to preach sermons that remove the substance that's needed to really convict some of these people. And I think as this kind of goes on, 
um, you, you realize that uh, you're doing more harm than good by not truly trying to push your, your parents, your, your, your white siblings, your white friends to really uh, 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 rectify and convict yourselves on some of the problems that, that we've had. And, and one of the things that is always mind-boggling for me is MLK Day comes around and all of these moderates love to post these pictures of him with quotes talking about peace because they think that aligns with their peacekeeping mentality and, and in some ways that reflects the, the idea of Christ. But in, in reality, it really shows that they truly do not know that MLK was very radical in some of the things that he said and some of the things that he did. And uh, in, in a very uh, ironic way, they failed to realize that he was using his church pulpit to talk about these issues and to separate these two things does not make sense. And so you really have to ask, do you know who you're tokenizing right now with an individual when you choose to put his quotes on your screen on, on that Saturday morning or when MLK mm. Day uh, hits? Because I don't think you realize that he's not this peacekeeper. And, and we've realized that, you know, when we look at the Beatitudes, the, the, the reality is God's calling us to be peacemakers. Like there, there is a distinct uh -huh. difference between the two. And, and this quote that MLK, it has always stuck with me where he talks about just the, the, the concept of church and state. And he says that if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an, an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. And I think what MLK is oh, describing okay. is exactly what Esther was stating, For now that many of these conservative evangelicals are placed on the front, their moral authority is removed because their, their policies that they want to push, it's no longer biblically based and it's no longer loved based either. I want to say thank you so much, Adrian, for bringing up MLK in this conversation because he is such a prime example of somebody who we have watched in the social justice fight, but forgotten where his base came from. Like, where did he begin? You know, I mean, he was a minister before he was ever an, you know, nationally known social justice warrior. And that is such a key point. Um, and I definitely think that um, that it is super important. I think separation of church and state is actually um, an important ethic in terms of like legality, right? I think it's important in terms of, mm. you know, maybe me not imposing my Adventist views on my Muslim best friend. Like, I think that those ethics are super important. But in terms of our individual um, ethic and the way that we view action in the world, I think it's totally inappropriate that we compartmentalize the the theory and the gospel of, of mm. social justice with the actions that we're taking in our community. How can we separate those things when they go hand in hand? I mean, are we trying to minister to ourselves again and again and again, or are we trying to minister mm. to a world that's in need? And how can we possibly um, you know, claim to love the least of these when we're not advocating 
for individuals who are marginalized in our communities. Um, so I do think that there's value in the separation of church and state. But I do, I also, uh, as this last thing, I also think it's funny that people are claiming separation of church and state for their perspective on that when that's that was a concept that was created by government that's not like a biblical concept so mm. i feel like we can find a much you know like you can't reach for somebody else's ethic and then claim it for your spiritual life um when that was a government Mercy. created ethic right like you have to be able to stand on what is your individual ethic what does your bible tell you about how to love other people and then we can kind of work out and i think it's important that we separate church and state to some great extent because there is an importance there but our advocacy should be informed by our equity principles oh, that's okay. mm. man y'all preaching it here man y'all preaching it here good so affirmative interaction revival what's up <laughs> <laughs> diversity amen Go ahead, Jordan. My bad. No, you're good. You're good. Just want to make sure we uh, get to let Garrison bow out. I know he has to just run to a meeting. Garrison, thank you for joining us. Oh, Any last words? No, I honestly, everything that's been said is just amazing. Shout out, y'all. Y'all are great. Bye. Bye. Nice you're good. Hey. Let's go. Control. The shorts on with the long sleeve. Let's go. I'll see you. Hey. A one fit. That's all good, bro. Hey. That zoom is all good, bro. Oh man. If I if I could just jump in real quick again, um, just to, first of all, echoing everything you guys have said, and um. You know, I think, and, and there were a couple of comments um, in, in Facebook that are kind of inspiring this comment for me. And it's, um, I do think that we do have to consider um, at some point, um, particularly as it pertains to white liberals in the Adventist church or folks who would consider themselves to be liberals, um, who are probably better labeled as white moderates and the white moderates that King was talking about is at what point are they going to have a conversation amongst themselves about what some true engagement on these issues looks like mm -hmm. um, from their pulpits, uh, from their, from their spheres of influence. And um, cause I have no problem being invited in to help facilitate conversations. I mean, we've done, every single one of us has been involved in some form of that at some point. Um, and I think that it serves its purpose and it's a good thing. Uh, but what I've learned is that, you know, after the dust settles, after your weekend event or after your day event or even your whole week event, there have to be people in place who are willing to take tangible action steps within that structure over a long period of time um, in order for anything to fundamentally change. Because, uh, you know, honestly, you know, one of the things that, you know, I say to folks who um, are maybe wanting to engage around organizing something like that is, you know, to be, to just be completely honest with you, um, you know, you may not be in the space right now where you want to put it on the line in that way. And if that's not the case, that's fine. But it's probably better that, that you not even have this event or conversation to begin with because you're likely gonna do more harm than good, particularly to the people of color, 
most most certainly the black people that are in your institution because they're left to bear the brunt of the fragility of the frustration of the uh, of of the of the white anxiety that's created in the wake of that kind of conversation, you know, and so um, I, I think I've really freed myself from the the need to uh, carry the burden of uh, a system that's that's mostly controlled by uh, the white moderate uh, or the white conservative, and um, and really at a certain point. I'm just waiting to see when they're when they're going to hold their own feet and, and the feet of their peers to the fire um, on these critical issues because um, we got enough to worry about just being black in America, let alone having to uh, try to force people to make decisions that they should have the the moral uh, equitable fortitude to make on their own. So in the comments, again, we have people listening and interacting with us, which we, of course, appreciate here at uh, Affirmative Interaction. Curtis Prevo says, I should add, though, that certain political activity does not jeopardize tax exemption, or rather, church leaders may fear that. All it takes is someone outside the church accusing the church of making political endorsements. Mark says, MLK's, MLK's words on the white moderate are amazingly relevant today. And Jared Hagerman says, remember that religion in this country was used to keep us as slaves. So unifying church and state wouldn't be good for us. Thank you so much for David Hernandez, again, Don L and Sandy Fellman for joining us. Um, we have about five more minutes on this topic. I'm curious. Yeah. What does, especially with what is going on today, how can we use our platforms more effectively in our church? How can we engage those that in our church that one could say are politically asleep, especially when some of our theology in our church is very much pointing towards the end. So why get engaged now? What relevance does that hold? What do you guys think about that? I mean, I think, um, as leaders, we have to just be willing to talk about things that might be might be uncomfortable. But at the same point, I want to push back on the one comment saying the separation of church and state is important, which I agree with. But as we see, um, Black Lives Matter is now a political statement, even though what does that have to do with politics? I mean, that movement was to fight back against the system of oppression of some of these deaths of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. The white people have decided to they see something that they see as not having to do with something that they don't want to talk about and say, oh, let's keep that out of church because that's not, that's, that's politics and we don't want to, and it's like, well, you made it politics, so if you want to get rid of it out of the political spectrum, then that's fine and we'll talk about it then. But you can't say, let's not talk about politics and then tell me every time I want to talk about something that progresses, allowing more people to be loved in our society, that that's now politics. And when it's, that's just an excuse. It's just, you're just using that to you know weaponize something that's that's something you don't really get behind and if you're telling me that black lives matter is a political statement i'm gonna sit i'm gonna call you a racist and we're gonna go back and forth on which which label we like better and that's just how that's gonna be because i'm fine if you want to politicize you're probably not okay with me telling you that i think you have really clear racial racial prejudice against some of these murders that are taking place and i can do that across the board 
and we do this, we're seeing it really harmful to the LGBT community right now, where we're starting to say like, hey, hey, you know, you can come worship with us, but oh, now you want to help out? Like, nah, don't, don't, picking up a broom to sweep up after this, oh, teaching the Sabbath school class? Oh, now you want to call for the offering? You know, I think you should relax. We're not that kind of church. And it's like, okay, well, so if you don't want to love, I really feel like the political movement, the, the sinful movement, is really just a way to not love people that we think don't fit into our Christian like mold that is. And, and I think that's, and until we start as leaders kind of pushing back on that, we're going to keep seeing this, that, that same conversation. I do kind of want to highlight though, that I think that there is a conditional politicization in those communities, right? Like, it's kind of like, they are going to speak up on like maybe a pro-life issue. They are going to speak up on, yep. you know, on other issues as well. Um, maybe ordinate, you know, uh, there, there are several issues that they're going to pipe up on, but they're not going to speak on issues of race. And I think that that's just a conditional acceptance of the gospel. That's just a conditional acceptance of picking and choosing what you want to yeah. advocate for, what you want to speak up for. And honestly, I mean, maybe to some extent we're all sort of like guilty of that, but we have to break that. We have to have continuity in, in our advocacy, in our ethic. You know, are we following all the way through the ball with um, our desire to advocate for a gospel ethic? in our advocacy yeah we should maybe yeah. just quickly point out um before i know we're going to transition I, it just kind of hit me as simone was talking that uh we'd be remiss to not point out you know we probably well i had a lot of conversations with um trump voters in 2016 and most of the time you know it was either the only or one of like two or three justifications that they would provide and justifications I mean, I'd say reasons because I mean people you know at that time you know you have your reasons to vote um, one of the only reasons if not the main reason that would be given would be around the fact that he'd be in a position to legislate morality from their perspective whether that's you know Supreme Court judges or I mean, we don't see Mitch McConnell right now because he's on a little tour just trying to get lifetime federal judge appointments all across the country so that they can chip away um, at various different rights or established rights that fit in with their moral compass. And so um, that's a very clear calculated marriage of spirituality and politics that's used to justify voting for someone even as grotesque as Trump. That's good. Thank you guys for sharing so much on this topic. And again, thank you all for continuing to watch with us and to talk with us at Affirmative Interaction. So there's a guy, he's a pastor, Lay with Todd. Uh, actually, excuse me, his name is Michael Todd and his sermon is called Lay with Fire. Huh? I saved myself there, very good. <laughs> he dresses very well and he also has a few things to say about sexuality and spirituality. And uh, one might say, based on how you look at it, what he said it was a bit problematic. Another might, others might say it's the answer that we need and how we navigate our world before we get married. Danny, I know you have some thoughts on this. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown on what happened and your angle on it? 
So uh, yesterday, I think, uh, or two days ago, we see this clip of Michael Todd preaching pop up on Twitter, on other social media platforms, where in the clip he is saying that uh, essentially every time you have sex with a partner that is not your husband or wife, that you are losing parts of yourself. And ultimately, you get to a point where you are not able to reach your full purpose in God because you have lost so many parts of yourself. And there was a lot of uproar about that comment that someone who has had a sexual past with multiple partners would be unable to be all they can be in God because of that sexual past. And so I uh, took the liberty of watching the whole sermon. It was a 17-minute sermon for a youth event. And essentially in the sermon, he spends a lot of time uh, teaching what a lot of churches are teaching, that uh, you should not have premarital sex, that you are damaging your body. He uses the lay with fire uh, concept to say that every time you are in these relationships, you're getting burned, and then you just end up burned and broken, essentially. Um, and it was just really interesting to watch because I think that we're reaching a point in society where we need to rethink how we, as a church, are talking about developing sexual ethic. So much of what we are hearing from preachers like Michael Todd or many others is using guilt and shame as a way to promote a way of thinking and a sexual ethic without equipping individuals to make decisions, have healthy emotional boundaries, because there are many reasons why, uh, many other reasons to be more conscious about choosing sexual partners at, that are not related to, I'm not going to fulfill my purpose. There's no way for me to fulfill my purpose or I'm damaged or I'm losing parts of myself because those things are not true and they're not biblical. So um, I think it'd be interesting to just talk a little bit about and get the ideas that you all have about this purity culture and ways in which we can push a better narrative for people that is less damaging because I also know of many people who um, married people who have had experiences where the same shame and guilt mentality has actually hurt their sexual life as a married couple, where a lot of these preachers promise, oh, you don't have sex until you're married, and then you're going to have mind-blowing, amazing sex once you get married. And that is the promise. But there's nothing that actually says that there's no teaching there's no guidance there's no development of making choices and decisions so um i think it's time to change the narrative so that the michael todd's are not leading this narrative for people today i do have yeah. to say um oh sorry agent go ahead no i well i was just gonna say um this particular um, um, sermon, uh, I think we can all admit that we've heard that or a variation of it at, at some point in our existence, whether you are an Adventist 
or any other Protestant. Um, um, the 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 real concern that I think you know what what Danny is is pointing to is it it really gives a very distorted view of not just uh, of the like the beauty of sex, but it also gives like a distorted view of like like God's love and grace, right? It's like if if you go down this path, you you are fundamentally breaking a covenant in which God Himself cannot fully bring you to recovery, and 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 that I think is is part of the shame that comes with it, and you see that with you know the example that that Danny gave. I I have spoken to a number of people that said um, when this person and their wife finally chose to have sex, they went through a period where they, and they described it as they felt like dirty, like that, that is how, how traumatic that experience can often be. And we, we think that it's just going to be like an on and off switch for the, the way it's being perceived. And the moment you say, I do, like <laughs> your, your views on sex are somehow just going to just abruptly change. Um, and I, I think that that there there needs to be a better method. And I remember, you know, S and I were having a conversation on on the sermon um, last night about that we we have to learn how to give better practical methods on the responsibility that comes with with safe sexual interactions, and perhaps presenting um, a a better practical emotionally responsible way to present um how beautiful sex is to to our young adults and our kids um because i think right now i i you her and i were really struggling to say i don't know if we had ever been presented um a real reason outside of marriage um of why uh waiting is so crucial is, is there something that you can say, here, here is a practical benefit that helps you perhaps emotionally, perhaps uh, phys uh, physically, not, regardless of which direction you went to, those conversations were never explored in a responsible way. It simply came down to this is a mandate that has to be followed. And, and I, we're, we're seeing that it's not working in, in no way at all. And, um, it, yeah, it, it, this, this one was, was, was hard for me personally, sorry. Yeah, I think it's bad theology. I mean, I don't, I don't want to disregard any, you know, people that might agree with it. It's bad theology on a number of levels. First of all, first and foremost, this isn't me trying to justify sex outside of wedlock or marriage or whatever. But I do think the conversation needs to be had that you can't scare the hell out of kids. Like, that's not how... That's not how you get kids to understand who God is and what love is by trying to scare mm -hmm. literally the hell out of them. I mean that, like, seriously. That It's funny that we have an image. I don't care if you don't believe in the Christian message and you're listening today. The Christian message of God sending his son to give us freedom from sin is a beautiful thing just across the board. You know, even if you don't think that it took place, fine, I don't care. Um, that's, it's a beautiful idea. And then we take that message and we say, this isn't working. Let's guilt them. Let's make them feel bad for their actions. Let's make them feel dirty. 
Let's make them feel ugly. Let's make them feel miserable. And you know, it, it's funny because yeah, I do. I do think. Um, I do think that the conversation is important to tell young people. Look, if you have sex with someone, and then you have sex with another person the next day, and then someone else the next day, your mental health is going to really be in shambles because there is emotional things that take place when you engage in sexual intercourse with someone. Um, there is connections that happen, uh, especially if you grew up in a household that told you that you should never do it. it your guilt is going to be even worse. It's going to be, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult for you. But you know, I hear this conversation. I have this conversation with, with young people. Often my parents are telling me when I go to college that if I have sex, like they'll kick me out the house. I'll do all this. And I'm like, look, uh, this black and white theology that we like to put in these situations that if you do this, you're wrong. And if you do this, you're right. It's just not working. The, the people live their lives and they make choices. And sometimes those choices were wrong choices, but that means the next choice can be a right choice. And we need to glorify right choices. We need to lift young people up and say, hey, look, you're empowered, not because of what you've done that has been bad about you, but because of what you can do and who you can be. And, you know, we are a community that can help one another. Um, I, you know, I, I texted Danielle and I guess he did. I, did, I didn't hear in his sermon where he really mentioned much about pornography, but I think if we're gonna talk about the issues with sexual immorality, let's start with the conversation about porn. Uh, yeah. Let's start with the conversation about how the most damaging thing you can do in your life as a teenager is become addicted to the, the substance of pornography. You know, my, I, had, I was talking to my counselor one time when I was talking about pornography, she was explaining to me how I wasn't actually addicted to porn, which is, a, that's a whole nother conversation we could have. But she told me like the problem with pornography is that couples will use pornography as their means of experimentation. And, and they'll think, oh, now I need to do all these nasty, terrible things to one another. And she said, if, if couples come to the realization that they like weird things naturally, that's a healthy realization that they come to with each other. But when porn is put into the conversation, it becomes this like pressure and it's just ugly. You want to talk about purity, let's talk about pornography and how it's ruined sexual purity for our young men across the board. And uh, we still shouldn't guilt them out of it. We should still let them know that this is harmful to them, that these things are going to hurt them. God is a God of freedom. He's a God of love. And he wants you to see that there are better things for you. And not that everything that you're doing is going to destroy your ability to have eternal life with him. That doesn't, this is bad all around. Yeah, I think, I think everybody's touching on like a really good point that the problem is like, we're trying to teach these principles through shame, but like God's reasoning isn't to shame us. Like that's never been why he tells us to do anything. It's never about like, this makes you bad. It's about, okay, there are ramifications, right? Like there's, there, I have a reason why I want you to do X, Y, and Z. And it's not about shame. It's not about your worth. It's, it's not, not, it's nothing like, like, like that. He's very clear. Like there's literally not a single thing we could do that's going to make us less valuable to him, less loved by him. Like nothing mm -hmm. that he asks us to do ever comes down to that, but we preach it like it does all the time instead of trying to dig deep and understand, okay, well, like if he's saying this, then like, why is he saying this? How do we unpack that and understand like he, he has practical reasons for like what he's asking us to do. And 
de like deliver that to people and explain that to people in a way that shows like everything he's asking us to do is actually based out of his love for us and his desire for us to live fulfilling, happy, healthy lives. So everything in the Bible that we are asked to do has to come back down to that. Like it's about you feeling loved by God and by yourself and being able to act on that in all avenues of your life. And it's never about shame or worth or value. You know, yeah. I love that. Oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jordan. So I love that shame is, is, is really being touched on because I feel like that is such a powerful tool. And unfortunately, the church uses just a little too frequently. I love this quote by Brene Brown. She says, shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear that we're not good enough because mm. true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves. What I will say is I feel like that presentation of our imperfect selves, that is what we do in our romantic relationship with the person that we're in love with, that we marry. And I feel like sex is cementing that special kind of vulnerability. Telling kids that maybe might be the best way to say, hey, sex is a tool to really cement the deep connection you have with this person, if, even if you don't wait for marriage to do this action, that doesn't make you any less worthy to do this in the future. Your worth is still the same. Your worth is still in Christ. It isn't dependent on what you do. That's the beauty of it. And it's a shame that we use sex to communicate this idea that I'm less than because of what I do. No, Christ rejects that. And that is a privilege he gives to us, the ability to put our worth in something that is uh, unlimited. So yeah, sex is something that can really cement a true relationship we have with someone, but deciding to not do that the way that God wanted us to do it does not make you any worthy, any less worthy of what he has for you in the future. Yeah. Yeah, um, I totally agree with what you just said, Jordan. And I think that what I find the most problematic about Michael Todd's statement is that he's conflating our mistakes and God's power to give us purpose in this life. Like mm. those two things are completely different. You have God's power all the way up here and you have our little puny mistakes down mm -hmm. here. Now that's not to advocate for, you know, oh, just do whatever you want and, and you will live, you know, the best life that you can. No, obviously we all know that making wise choices, making responsible choices are all great. Um, but it's such a toxic theology to say that somehow God's ability to save us and God's ability to fulfill his purpose in our lives is conditional upon any mistakes that we make. Um, I also think that it's problematic just very quickly um, that they're expressing this ethic because um, of how like things like rape could happen. And, you know, those individuals who were victims mm -hmm. and who were targets don't deserve for this to be in the back of their mind. This is absolutely not their fault. It's not going to inhibit them from having a purpose-filled life. And when we make these blanket statements to scare our young people, which is already toxic, we actually isolate communities that have already been victimized and have already been cast aside. Very good. Very good.
Yeah, so good. Thank you. Thank you all so much. I'll say two quick things. First of all, as it pertains to Mike Todd, if if it's not about a fade, I'm really not interested. So, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's just to be clear. That boy's fade is clean, that's though. That's very clean, boy. <laughs> he, he, he's had me very envious during that quarantine. As you can see, your boy's blowing it out right now. But anyways, not, in all seriousness, um, I think a lot of this is rooted in the fact that the church has always had this weird relationship to sin. Um which also causes the church to oftentimes not allow God to be God. Um, we, we operate around um, these ins and outs, like um, Richard Roy talks about in True Self, False Self, how um, we build these ins and outs in religious communities. And isn't it always interesting that your religious persuasion or your religious um, opinion is the right one and everyone, every other one is the wrong one? Because... In order for us to have this, uh, we, we were told in order for us to have this membership in this religious community, we have to know that by doing this, by membership, and as a part of that membership, doing these different things, and that's going to get me something, i.e. heaven. Uh, because if we can't sell that, then it's just not marketable to be here if we can't answer all these questions. And, and I think that what pastors like Mike Todd um, and others need to do is, is to step outside of the the mean preacher mentality, because um, I think the the IG Twitter like fifteen second snapshot meme culture has pushed a lot of these pastors to just try to say something catchy. Like the mm -hmm. the thing that jumped out to me a lot in the clip was like how people were just like, "Oh, that's good, that's good, oh, that's good," and it's just like, "Do you really believe that that's good, or does it just like sound good?" And of yeah. course, there's some there's some biblical uh, metric to that about tickling the ears and that just being appealing to you, not really thinking about the implications of what's being said. And so I really just want the church to really embrace more of the unknown, the complexity, the nuance, and allow people, allow us to have a community where we're walking alongside one another through um, our mistakes, through um, these things that, that may be dragging us down, understanding that uh, first of all, the love of God, the non-coercive love of God is unconditional. It's, it's, all, it's all caring. It's all forgiving. And, and the spirit of God can then empower us over time to hopefully make some of these different decisions that um, are in the best interest of who we've been created to be, not from a place of shame, but from a place of, of true solidarity with that spirit and in that love. Um, the, the second quick thing, that, that I want to say connected to it. Um, and in regards to what Logan was saying on, on the point of porn, you know, I think that particularly, and I don't want to just make that exclusive to men because I know that, that women do struggle with pornography as well um, at a rate higher than we probably may, may, may assume. Um, uh, a friend of, of many of ours on here, Dr. Heather Thompson Day, I remember in a sermon, she was talking about how um, the, these, um, this, they want, there wanted to be a study done on the effects of pornography in men, and they needed a control group, which means men that aren't, you know, watching porn or could commit to not watching porn for a certain period of time. I think they wanted to compare the two groups of men for like a month. And they couldn't do the study because they couldn't find men who hadn't interacted with porn or enough men in order to have like a large enough control group to have you know, all the different, you know, RBI, um, you know, regulations around a study. 
And so it was just like that hit me because, you know, um, so taking the the purity culture mentality to its extreme, then all of those men's IRB. Thank you, Danny. I I said that wrong. I clearly don't do research. uh, My doctorate was not a PhD. It was a JD. Simone testify. Um, but, um, yeah, so if we took that, if we took that to its extreme, then, you know, all these men who've been, you know, have interacted with that in some way that have all these pieces of them in the digital universe somewhere, well, they can never be complete and none of them will, you know, can attain salvation. Um, a lot of then a lot of us are in trouble i'm just gonna i'm just gonna be clear on that you know so i think we have to be very careful about the kinds of ins and outs that we create um particularly in in our religious sphere because um you know after a while you you run out of things that you can be forgiven for yeah um Nixon, uh, you, you brought up something and then it, it kind of really uh, convicted one of the things that I was starting to sense, um, particularly when I was listening to the sermon. And um, I and I also don't know if, if in many ways I'm the, the, the best person to point this out, um, but I feel like we haven't really touched on um, the particular audience that this conversation is normally focused on. Um, and it's always on our women, <laughs> you know? Um, for example, I don't even know if Pastor Todd noticed it, but in his, his humorous analogies and examples, he would say things like, you, you, you done slept with, with nine men. You've had 16 boyfriends. So he, he is clearly, either subconsciously or not, framing the conversation to a particular sex. And that, you know, it, it runs deep. In, in other ways that I don't even know if it became apparent to me until um, Esther and I were doing our premarital uh, counseling, which was, you know, June Price was asking t- a very tough question, which was, have you seen your mother um, show um, uh, sexual or physical interaction with your father? Or have you seen your father's express their physical or sexual interaction to to your mothers and it opened the conversation that I think in some ways aligns with it I think sometimes our religion um, removes the 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 genre for women in being sexual beings being comfortable in the fact that they are attracted being comfortable in the fact that they are sexy uh, and in many ways it, it results in from what I've seen um, a reservation surrounding their sexuality. And you see it sometimes spill over in perhaps a relationship or perhaps in a marriage. And that I think is one of the more concerning things is I don't think he realizes that your, your rhetoric is not just hurting their sex life. It's hurting how they feel about being sexual um, beings in general. And that I, I thought was the most damaging thing. And uh, it, it really heart, like broke my heart when I kind of came to that realization. That your comment, Adrian, made me think about the, also the idea that especially in black spaces, um, he indicated in the sermon that he was speaking to black teenagers. 
um, mm. because he also quoted statistics about the num the percentages of high schoolers by race that had had some type of sexual experience. But there's this thing in the black community of uh, the Jezebel stereotype of black women. And so a lot of our discussion about sexual purity is in a, in a, in a way a, a tool to control the black woman and to control the bodies of black women. And I don't think many of our churches and many of our preachers even think about the way that happens because um, I think I sent this to everyone, the, this uh, thread from a female theologian and sociologist on Twitter. She talks about, for example, how, how often preachers lift up David as an mm. ideal man for which mm. to emulate this man after yeah. God's own heart. Mm -hmm. But David was sexually impure but we don't see that as him not being able to live up to his purpose. You yeah, know, he is, and he's not just sexually impure, he's also a murderer. He also doesn't know how to do his job very well. So there's all of these different things that in these standards, in that narrative that we look to as an example of faith while at the same time demonizing women mm -hmm. uh, about some of the same things. So. Yeah. I think it's important for us to even look at that when we're talking to young people or young adults about this, that, as you said, the way we talk about it is affecting the minds of those people. So a lot of times young men are leaving the conversations without the same baggage that young women are leaving the conversations with. I'm muted. Um, there was one story in scripture that we see a young black woman that was called out for her, you know, experiences with other men. And we see that when a group of men had gathered around this woman and they had began to pick up stones and they were going to throw this at that woman. And, and it's almost like we're given an example of what to do in that case by the man that we all call our savior, Jesus Christ, that says, you know, you would that is without sin you cast the first stone and you know it's funny because we see this this narrative and we actually see with christ time and time and time again how he shows us like hey this might come up later let me show you how to deal with it now and we're like nah like that was good and everything but we'd really rather be mean to people like we'd really rather guilt people we'd really really rather hurt people because um you know that's just how we feel uh that judgment should come it should come at the hands of man and uh, jesus continually told us it's not going to be your hands that should judge but mine and i'm going to do that here um you would think that we would stop unjustly treating people after we watched what happened you know to the unjust treatment of our savior and the people that he interacted with but i think you know, even in our theology i guess well a great discussion if i ever heard one and i did hear it and it was really good Thank you all again for joining us at a furtive interaction. Uh, we're just going to close out really quick with a quick PMI. Again, PMI stands for piqued my interest. Name a TV show, podcast, piece of music, movie, book, anything that has inspired you or piqued your interest this week. We're going to start with Danielle. Danielle, what piqued your interest? Um, this week I've been watching Netflix. so. Uh, I started watching 
show called Imposters. Uh, I had never seen it. It's pretty good on Netflix. I watched one episode a night. It has me completely stressed. So if you're looking for a stressful <laughs> but funny show, Imposters is the one. Very good, thank you. And this is on Netflix streaming. Simone, could you share for us, please? Yes, so um, I don't know if you guys have heard of Samin Nosrat, but she is a chef and she has a Netflix show called Salt, Fat, Acid, and Heat, and she also has a book. Both are excellent. Both have been piquing my interest this week. Hit her up if you want some cooking tips. She's amazing. Her bakery, Berkeley in Berkeley, just not far where she grew up, and Japanese, which is like our like the most expensive restaurant in the world. Well, not in the world, but it's like four hundred dollars. Yeah, like literally blocks away from me. That's yeah. crazy! Wow, that's crazy. Wear a mask when you go. Have to. Logan, before Logan, before you put your mask on, uh, could you share <laughs> what piqued your interest this week? <laughs> Yeah, so I just want to give a shout out to a great article I wrote, I read this week that was um, posed around the conversation of the last dance documentary that came out on ESPN, um, just by a good friend of mine. It was in Message Magazine. It's called My Last Dance. It's by Michael Nixon. Really interesting stories and takes about how he interacted with the, the with the documentary. But I just want to give him a shout out. It's cool to to read things, but it's also cool to read things by people that you interact with on a daily basis. So great article, Michael. Uh, I'll drop that in the comments so everyone can read it, but it was just uh, really thought out um, and thoughtful reactions to not only how he's met Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan blew him off, and uh, but also how uh, he reacted to some of the things that he noticed in the, the documentary. So check out Last Dance and then read Michael's article. Very good. Michael, uh, could you share what interested you this week? And now, now I feel bad about Dragon Logan, though. I appreciate that, bro. <laughs> nah, yeah, nah, it's all love. <laughs> it's all love. Um, first of all, shout out to Grammarly, because I was going to type peaked my interest today, and I think I've been, for whatever reason, typing it P-E-A-K instead of P-I-Q-U. So <laughs> huge shout out to Grammarly. If they want to sponsor the pod, that would be awesome, because clearly, clearly I need it. Uh, 11 weeks of quarantine will do that. So real quick, The Enneagram of Belonging by Christopher, Christopher L. Hertz, A Compassionate Journey of Self-Acceptance. This book will blow your mind. Uh, we probably have to do a whole pod on the Enneagram. I'm not going to go super deep into it. A quick layman's description. It's a, it's a, it's a really in-depth personality. Um, I'd say construct. I don't like it. You know, the book really actually talks a lot about how it's a lot more than a personality test. And that's what it's sort of been claimed to be. It's really um, a system, a construct that helps you understand everything, but at first yourself. Um, and so I've, I've begun, began to dive into this and um, it will wreck you. And so beware if you haven't um, dove into the Enneagram yet, I'd encourage you to do uh, the Enneagram Profile Index through the Enneagram Institute, uh, then read The Sacred Enneagram, which is by Chris Hertz, the Enneagram, both by Richard Rohr, and I encourage you to dive into this as well. Um, it will free you from shame, free you from oppressive religious thought. Uh, jump into it. Very good. And Adrian, could you go next for us, please? Oh, you're muted. 
JK. It's the second time. My bad, my bad, my bad, my bad. All right. So um, one of the things that I, I've been a fan of the show before, but um, just watching it more recently um, is the Patriot Act on Netflix by Hassan Minaj. Um, he, I think, represents a new form of comedy that I have come to admire. Um, I hold him and what he stands for in high esteem, particularly because he does a great job of giving social political commentary with the humor um, that helps you process these things um, because of so much absurdity happening around the world. And that um, he, I think he's on season six right now. And so Netflix, tune into that, definitely would give recommend. Very good. And Esther, what piqued your interest this week? Um, yeah, I'm reading a, bu a book. It's not a new book. It's been out for decades, but I'm reading it for the first time. It's Their Eyes Are Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And it is phenomenal. I was expecting it to be depressing because so much like black classic lit by women is like really hard, but it is so enjoyable and also super mm -hmm. empowering and everybody should read it, but especially black women should read it. <laughs> very good very good i think that's everyone what piqued my interest this week is probably the nerdiest thing i've done in a long time but i've been reading um michael brian bendis's run of the miles morales spider-man uh story mm. and if you don't know miles morales is actually the first black spider-man which was amazing and it's amazing to read his story. And you know, you can say nerd this, nerd that, but it's amazing to be able to see yourself in a story like that. For years, I grew up watching superheroes, most of them being white. It's amazing to see a character that looks like me do amazing things. And I can't wait to show my future kids and have them have those stories they can, that they can grow up on uh, too. So uh, that is, all for affirmative interaction thank you all for joining us we're so happy you made it out hold on hold on before before you jump off esther do you want to correct him one time real quick <laughs> yes miles morales is black but he is very specifically <laughs> afro latino we don't get very much shine so that is important to say there you go that is important if i remember correctly his father's black his mother is afro latina and uh, I love their characters in the story too. It's amazing. Thank you for the correction. Appreciate that. So that is the end of our episode. Please uh, join us next week where we discuss secondary trauma, considering George Floyd and a black death on camera, and also Karen's gone wild, weaponizing <laughs> white womanhood. We're so glad you made it out to affirmative interaction. <laughs> I'm your host, Jordan Smart, and don't forget to turn on your post notifications on Facebook so you know when we go live. See you next week. Yeah. <laughs> I think who's gonna who can end it? I think Simone might have to. Oh she out. Yeah. Uh oh. Like, do we all just leave?